Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. This summer has been a busy one at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, starting with a blockbuster Visconti retrospective. Next week, we'll talk about Visconti, but first, we need to do some catching up. Last month, we kicked off our Film Comment pre-talks here at the Film Society. You've already heard our talk with Ari Aster, but we've also had another special guest here for a talk, Paul Schrader. Schrader has a new movie out, First Reformed, but he's also been a longtime contributor to the magazine since the 1970s. I spoke with Schrader about his long and storied career, which includes, of course, Taxi Driver and the critical study Transcendental Style in Film. Please be aware that the audio on the recording is a little muffled at times because of a technical snafu in the booth, but there's no mistaking the filmmaker's energy and flair for storytelling. Here's Paul Schrader. Through a serendipity a couple of months ago, I stumbled on a trove of letters that I had written to my brother from 67 to 70. And I wrote, he was living in Kyoto. And I wrote him every other week, and I told him everything in my life, every movie I saw, about coming to UCLA, about going to AFI, about being with Pauline Care. And, uh, and these letters all existed. Uh, he died 10 years ago. His, his widow is now dying. But in her possessions, we found these papers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Phil Common is going to yes, publish them in an epistolary form. Epistolary form, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be publishing excerpts from, from these letters. And there's such a fascinating record of a time I kind of wish I lived in, but also feel like I'd be scared to live in. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can really just see a mind being forged. You know, I, I, I tell them, uh, I just saw Pickpocket. You know, wow. I just saw Wild Bunch. Wow. I just met with Renoir. Wow. It's a time that I don't think really will repeat itself because that's a time when you're, you know, you're a young critic, you know, maybe in the back of your mind aspiring to make films at some point, but really at this point, just a lover of movies, and you're getting to see the actual, like you're gonna go to Renoir's house. There's a great line in one of the letters where you say, um, um, I'm gonna see Fritz Lang, um, but just socially, not professionally. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's, I mean, what is that like for, for you starting out at that point? I mean, were you aware that it was kind of a special time? Or? No. Um, on the other hand, I can't say I wasn't, you know, because when you read those letters, it's like watching a buzz saw. You know, you see some young man, white young man, burning at a high temperature, you know, slicing through life and stacking to death. And all my companions at that time were in luxury in the color culture of 1967, 1968, and all I was doing was just watching movies. And uh, I never did catch up with their drug use, and I never did catch up with their, uh, you know, sexual incontinence. <laughs> 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 I 
I regret it, but, <laughs> but I don't think I'd be sitting here now if I did. Well, you got a lot of writing done, I guess. That's the solitary life. I mean, you're writing for the free press at that time. It's also a different, like, critical landscape at that time. I mean, yeah, well, the only free press was at that time 100,000 uh, strong circulation. And, uh, and, you know, we were very radical. And, you know, it was like headlines, like, pigs kick hippies. <laughs> you know, it's like, that goes under the head. That's the story. <laughs> I mean, you know, starting out like that, it's kind of rare for a filmmaker, I think, to have had such a deep critical background and kind of been in the trenches as a weekly critic, because that's something also you were doing is reviewing on a very regular basis. I mean, is that something you think about now, or uh, does it give you any empathy for critics or not? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's not possible to be a working critic and a working filmmaker simultaneously. You can be a, a working literary critic, a novelist, but the filmmaking business, there are just too many connections. And you can say about an actor, the best work he's done in five years. And you think that's a compliment. And then you hear back from the representative and says, Brad, you know, Brad or whoever his name is, is furious. You know, what do you mean I haven't done good work in five years? So there is no level of flattery that rises to sufficiency for people, you know, in my business. So you just, you stay away from it. And so I, you know, I continue to do think pieces. And tomorrow, um, I've gone back to this book I wrote almost 50 years ago and revised it for the contemporary context. And I think it comes out tomorrow. Yeah, the Transcendental Style Cinema, yeah. um, which has a new introduction, which I want to talk about uh, as well. Is, uh, I mean, one thing I like about all the criticism that you write in this kind of long format is that you're always throwing down the gauntlet. You, you don't, you don't, you're not just saying some tiny revision or something. Um, and, and that's certainly the case of transcendental science. Anyway, also interesting at the time because maybe there was a lot of political fervor at the time, but there you're kind of focusing on religion, which is a little different than maybe from people who were around you at the time. Yeah, well, I had, uh, you know, I'm a product of uh, Christian Reformed Church in Western Michigan. And so that's how my personal computer <coughs> was programmed. And uh, you never shake that. You could run all your life, you could run as fast as the days, but you never outrun your childhood. And uh, so I was at a weird moment when I was in LA because um, I had this theological background, um, all this theological training. And then I fell in love with movies. And then I started seeing some movies where I thought there was a bridge. I saw a bridge between my sacred past and my profane present. And it was a bridge of style. It was not a bridge of content. And that kind of electrified me. What is this bridge of style? How does style, not content, connect the holy and the art? And so, you know, that, 
And I was too young to write that book. I knew it. I 24. But I, you know, I don't see anybody else writing this book. <laughs> and if I don't write it, I'm not. Now, I'm never going to write it. Because this is going to be a one year's work. And I'm going to get zero money. You know, how much longer do I want to live working for nothing? <laughs> and so I better write it right now. So that's what happened. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're tackling filmmakers that a lot have been written about you, which Dry and Ozu. I mean, uh, obviously you have no shortage of self-confidence. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, Ozu was fairly new on the scene. It's true, yes. <clears throat> I mean, you know, just through Don Ritchie, you know, I became aware of him. And, uh, and of course, you know, all of these scholars were so kind. Um, I mean, it's in fact the book that Susan Sontag should have written. And I talked to her about it. She had moved on. She wasn't going to write the book. She'd done her piece on Grace Owen. Now she was someplace else. She was very voracious that way. And so I thought, well, Susan won't write this book. Or maybe I should. And uh, I mean, um, just to go, we're kind of working our way forward. And the next kind of major work you did, at least as pertains to film comment, is the Yakuza piece you did, which is a whole other uncovering of another kind of landscape of cinema. I mean, how did you get into that interest? Well, I'd written a, a piece on film noir <laughs> for Filmax, you know. Uh, no one had written about film noir yet, the French had. And there was one article where it read, they're not. But no Americans had written about it. So I, I thought I'd program this film series. And then I was, I was drifting. Um, I had hit a very black, black spot in my life. And uh, out of this spot, I wrote Taxi Driver out of uh, self-therapy. And then I left Los Angeles. I drifted around the country. And maybe I drifted six, seven months going here and there, this job, that job, trying to get my mental health back because I was in a very dangerous suicidal place. And I was in North Carolina, and this letter came to me. And it was from my brother, who had gone to Kyoto as a missionary, because I was the way you got out of the draft if you were a church kid. You just went to the church board and you say, I have a calling, boom, you're, you know, you're a divinity student, you don't have to go to Vietnam. So he had gone to Kyoto to teach at Yoshisha. And uh, like me, he had um, lost his faith, lost his wife, and lost his job. <laughs> And he had now taken to watching gangster movies. And um, the, not the Shojuku, the. Uh, the Yakuza ones? Or the... Yeah, the ones with Kid Takakura and yeah. Fuji Joko. Um, not Shojuku, Shojuku was, was also. But the Toei. He, he was watching all these Toei gangster movies. And he wrote me this long, long letter. And he clearly had been obsessing. And it's just most of it, 10, 12 pages of single space typing about all these gay 
um, and uh, you know, also a lot of your own interests, and this kind of idea of religion and also uh, violence. But it also seems to come out of like a personal grappling with the world being a complete mess. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, human beings have been having a discussion for thousands of years. Why are we here? Uh, what will become of us? And this has always been a hypothetical conversation. We would have it, then our children would have it, and then their children would have it, and so on. Now, for the first time, we're starting to think maybe it's not so hypothetical. That maybe this conversation is definitive. And that we, as a species, as presently constituted, most likely will not see the end of this century. Well, that's a lot of gravitas. That's a lot of weight. And so it puts all that weight on this eternal discussion. In, in our, in our uh, phone call, the reviewer wrote about it, a very positive review of First Reform, um, and I thought she said something really interesting, which is that this is maybe the first movie where you're applying like uh, elements of the transcendent, transcendental style of film? Yeah, it was the first time I tried. Mm -hmm. Now, I had written that book almost 50 years ago, and that was a book about recessive techniques that filmmakers use in order to pull the viewer into the mystery. I never thought I would make a film like that. You know, people would ask me and I would say, no, 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 that's not me. I'm too intoxicated with sets of violence, action and empathy. I'm never going to go there. You will never catch me out on that thin Bracelian ice. I'll fall in. <laughs> never. So just stop those, making those connections. And then about three years ago, I was having dinner with uh, Pavel Pavlovsky because I was giving him an award at the New York Society of Film Critics for EGO. Mm -hmm. And we got to talk, they were talking about spirituality in cinema. We were talking about my book, which he knew quite well. And we're talking about the new economics of filmmaking, whereby films that were once financially irresponsible are now becoming responsible because uh, the costs have dropped down so much. And I walked up Tao that night, from Tao up to Chelsea, and in that seven or eight blocks, I said, it's time now. It's time to write that movie. You swore you would never write. And the time has come. You're going to be 70, year old, 70 years old next year. Now you're going to write that movie. And once that decision was made, now it didn't have anything to do with the subject matter of the movie. Once I made a decision that I'm going to make a spiritual film, then it happened quite quickly because all of, the, all of a sudden, you know, the, the blockade had fallen away and all of a sudden I was free to go to that place. I swore I would never go. I mean, uh, it, what's also interesting about the film is that, uh, you know, you talk in, in Transcendental Style about 
the how and the what. And this movie kind of has both, actually, in terms of being adventurous with having this, you know, Ethan Hawke playing a priest character who's just, you know, very deep into, into a kind of existential depression. Um, but you also have a lot of stylistic flights, um, just kind of bravura filmmaking that you have in both of them. And how did you decide to push it that far? Well, if you're going to do a film in the contemplative mode, in the spiritual mode, then you get involved with withholding techniques because you cannot push somebody through the door into the mystery. You cannot hold their hand. You have to incite them to take the journey. You can't give them music that makes it easy for them to understand. You can't give them um, editing processes that explains things for them. You just have to keep withholding. Withhold, withhold, withhold. Now, if you keep withholding from a viewer, one or two things will happen. Either the viewer will get up and leave the room, which is fine. Or the viewer will start to lean toward you, saying, you know, and as I said to Ethan the very first time we talked about it, I said, the moment you feel the viewer lean toward you, lean back even more. You know, and, um, and so this passive-aggressive form of filmmaking, uh, and the movies are so needy, and you know, we in the movies, you know, we grab you by the lapels, and we show you pictures of pretty people, and, and action, and explosions, and then we play music which tells you how to feel every single moment of the film, that's what we do. We're desperate for your love and your attention. When movies don't do that, the opportunity arises to have something else happen. If movie says, I don't care how much you love me. In fact, I may just walk out of the room. You decide what you want to do now. Then something else can start to happen. But that is a very, very difficult dance. You know, the dance of passive aggression is so tricky. And uh, I've used the phrase, the scalpel of boredom. You know, how do you use the scalpel of boredom to carve a portrait? And what happens when you make a mistake with that scalpel? Well, you just have plain old boredom. Yeah, it's like working with acid or something. It's pretty dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and this, this kind of brings us into um, the, the new material you wrote for the new edition of, of Transcendental Style a bit, uh, where you address what's often been termed slow cinema. Um, and I, I was you know, so fascinated to come across this as a new forward in, in this book because it made total sense. It's a continuation. Um, it seems to be a form or approach you have some ambivalence about them. Well, what I didn't realize in 1972, uh, when I thought Trent Nelson was sort of an outlier, and then I went back and revisited it, and I realized that, in fact, it was part of a grand tradition, and it was part of the neo-realist tradition. The idea of a change in the concept of time. Now, the man who broke through this was French philosopher Gilles Deleuze. 
and he wrote a book in 84, another one in 86, one called Movement Image, and the other called Time Image. And he postulated that starting around the end of World War II, film shifted from the concept of movement image to time image, which means it's no longer so important what is happening movement-wise on screen. What matters is how long you're watching it. The time spent watching an image becomes more important. And certainly, right after World War II, you started to see this whole burst of films where they were really interested in duration. And what does that mean? Now, I'll give you a quick example of duration. Brayson was a, one of the first people to recognize it, which is the delayed cut. Okay. So, someone enters or exits the room. Normally, you cut on action. You cut as the door opens, you cut as the door closes. Now, Brayson holds up that, that someone enters the room and he holds on that door. And the door closes. One, two, three. Then cut. Well, what's happening while he's watching that door? This is not what we do in real life. Nobody sits and watches the door after someone leaves the room. We find something else to see. But now we're in a movie, and he's making us watch this door. Well, whatever is happening is not about that door. Something is happening. There's not nothing. Nothing ever happens. Something is always happening. But what it is about is the time we spend looking at the door. Dead time, time you know, time war. And how does dead time affect a viewer? So that's what I started to uh, realize, that this concept of durational cinema was something that was part of the mainstream and something that I had not fully understood until Deleuze came along and wrote those books to make me understand it. And that when filmmakers start breaking free from the nucleus of narrative, and they shoot, start shooting off like electrons, they go different directions but primarily three directions. One is toward the surveillance camera, the unending shot of reality. You know, the eight-hour waiting to movie. Another direction they go is toward the mandala, which is the meditative religious experience. And the third direction they go is toward the art gallery, which is simply an exploration of, of color and light. And what I realized was that as filmmakers break free from narrative and become more and more extreme, until finally they run into the dead end. And now we're talking about dead end cinema when you start talking about some of these filmmakers. You know, um, and then I realized that there was a thing called the Tarkovsky ring, or I call it the Tarkovsky ring, which is that point when the director flees narrative 
and passes from the commercial cinema to the museum cinema. And once he passes through the Tarkovsky break, he's no longer a commercial artist. He's a museum artist. And so then I was able to reconfigure all of these directors whom I had respected and watched and how they fit in this cosmogony of, of directors. So that was the, uh, the insight I had um, uh, while rethinking that book. I mean, I'm curious. Well, that's a lot of talk, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's just. I mean, it's interesting to see, you know, someone revisit a piece of criticism like that. Was there a particular movie you saw in like in the past 10, 15 years? I mean, you mentioned Wong Bing just now. We just had an eight-hour film in, in, in Cannes. I mean, and, you know, was there a film of his you had seen or like Simon Wong? No. Something? What happened was, and it was coincidental. Right around the same time, I was having this discussion with Pavel. I was invited to Media Society in SC, SCMS. They were having their conference in Atlanta. And they were having a, uh, a session called Rethinking Transcendental Style about this book I had written 45 years before. And there was a, one scholar from Baylor, another scholar from Portugal, and another scholar from Israel delivering papers on what had become of that style I positive way back then. And I sat there, I listened to these lectures, I said, oh boy, if anybody's gonna be rethinking this, it should be me. <laughs> I'm the one who needs to rethink. <laughs> and so that's how that started. Yeah. I, I also wanted to talk, this is a great moment since I had you on the spot, <laughs> to talk about another big um, you know, essay you wrote more recently for, for Film Comment, which is the famous canon. Essay, which is also kind of a contentious um, piece. I don't know if that's also something you still hear about a little disputing your top 20, top 40. Yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, I had been hired to write uh, a Harold, what's his name? Harold Bloom, right? The, yeah, Harold Her Bloom kind of book on the film cabinet. Mm -hmm. And I started researching and I, I didn't believe in the film cabinet. And so then I said, well, I guess I'll have to write an article about why I don't believe in film cat. And uh, it was uh, a, bit, a bit esoteric, you know, and uh, my friend John Chadley, the playwright, said, you know, said to me, I don't know how anyone could spend so much time writing something that no one would read. <laughs> 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 that's, that's, of course, a backhanded compliment to the uh, very select audience in film comment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, but it's, it's an interesting piece. I mean, also, you know, that, that was 12, 13 years ago. Um, you know, now people are able to, it's, it's kind of a mixed landscape. I don't know how you feel about this. In some ways, it's easier to see film. In some ways, it's less easy to see films. But, uh, you know, as, as, as film Well, we, we are in this very peculiar moment where uh, anybody can now make a film. I mean, anybody, every one of you. If you haven't figured out how to make a film by the age of 12, you're behind the curve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we can all make movies, but none of us can make money out of it. 
Now that's the flip side of that, yeah. freedom. And uh, so now we have this tsunami of film product, more than we can possibly watch, uh, more than an army of critics can digest. And uh, you know what? What does that do to us? Um, you know, so I made this film first of all. Now, between 10 and 12 independent films a year raise their head above the crowd and become acknowledged. Out of 15,000, how do you get to be one of those 10 films? And I've you know, been learning this lesson. First, you have to go through the gatekeepers, which are the festivals, and you have to knock them off. Uh, so, Telluride, Venice, Toronto, New York. But that's not enough anymore. You can't just do the festival, because that's only a four to six week buzz. We don't trust that anymore. So now, A24, who bought my film out of Toronto, now they start running me through the gauntlet. <laughs> and I ran through the gauntlet for five or six months. Screenings here and there. I did a lecture tour of various seminaries. Um, just, and they're just waiting. They're waiting to see if the film is growing or diminishing. And after South by Southwest, which was six months after uh, Toronto, A24 came to me and said, okay, we're going to push it. Now, that's how long it took. Yeah. And uh, so it is a, a very merciless yeah, environment. It, like, and it doesn't seem like it allows a lot of space for just like a thinking writer to step back at the times. I mean, what's, you know, when you, how long did it take you to, to put together first and foremost, just in terms of writing the screenplay itself? Well, once I made that decision, as I said, yeah. then boom, uh, you start thinking, what are the films that uh, I respect of this ilk? And of the, you know, the dozen or so, revisit them all, watch them all, start figuring out, you know, where you're going to steal from. <laughs> because, you know, creativity and theft are are Siamese brothers. <laughs> and uh, so that, you know, the secret of theft is that you have to steal around. You can't keep going back to that same 7-Eleven. <laughs> They're going to catch you. They're waiting for you. <laughs> so then you go over to the floral shop. And then you go over to the gas station. And then you go to that hot dog stand that nobody goes to. <laughs> and you steal something from them, from that. And then you put them all together and somebody else thinks that you've been creative. <laughs> and that's sort of how we do it. Um, <laughs> Well, but, but it's been very successful. <laughs> but I mean, how does that feel? Because, you know, you, it, it's, some, some films of yours have received better than other films, but this one has really seemed to have hit, hit a sweet spot for a lot of people. How does that feel for you? Well, what I didn't understand, I thought I was 
mimicking a number of European models. Diary of a Country Priest, Winterlight, The Mirror, or Death, uh, Silent Light, Eda, you know, uh, Voyage in Italy. I was stealing from all of them and putting them together. And uh, what I didn't realize was in the editing room, the edit editor said to me, he said, you know there's a lot of taxi driver in this movie. I said, yeah, I know there's some because I put it in there. <laughs> but I didn't realize there was so much. And that the glue which held these European references together was the propulsive compulsion of taxi driver. And I hadn't really quite figured that That's out. That's the kind of engine that's kind of pushing yeah. for. Yeah. Um, I, I want to give the audience the chance to ask some, some questions. I know there's probably a lot of here. We'll start in the front here. Okay, well, is it okay to steal from yourself? And the question is, is it okay to steal from yourself? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I certainly have. Uh, but, you know, that gets to be a little uh, self-referential. How do you know when you're stealing from yourself, you know? Um, Occasionally, you spot yourself stealing from yourself and say, oh, I can't do that. They'll catch me. But sometimes you don't even know you're stealing from yourself until later down the road. But you, you never really steal from yourself because you're always you know, stolen from so many things before. So I talk about stealing from Tactical. Well, Tactical was stolen from Nausier by Sartre, it was stolen from Le Tourget by Camus. And so, you know, you're always stealing. Steal from the best. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, um, when you're kind of in the thick of, it, of, making, a, of making a film, uh, as someone who also does a lot of critical writing, is it ever difficult to kind of separate the critic's mind from the filmmaker's mind, or do you just embrace it? Yeah, well, that's a good question because, you know, Tony Scott, the uh, New York Times, you know, sort of criticized me for insufficiently being able to separate. And I understand this criticism. I understand it very well, in fact. And it's a risk because they are, in many ways, hypothetical. Describe the critic as a medical examiner. The critic wants to get that body, wants to put it on top of the table, wants to cut it open and find out why it died or lived. The filmmaker is like a pregnant woman, and all she wants to do is bring this thing inside of her to life. And so if you let the critic into the birthing room, <laughs> he will kill that baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to remember that. <laughs> um, okay. yeah. um, I have a question about the end of First Reform, um, because I saw it just this week, and I've been kind of going around with this, but I... I didn't see it. I'd like to elicit some more conversation on Julian of Norwich. Uh, because on oh, um, the reference desk, there's a hazelnut in a hand. Yeah. You, you caught it. You know, this is interesting. He, he's making a comment about a paperweight on the desk. 
and it's a, a woman's hand with a hazelnut in it. And uh, Julian of Norwich, we don't know her real name. She just, they, they gave her the name of her employer. But she was one of the very first of the mystic writers, 1350. And uh, she talked about looking at a hazelnut in her park for over an hour until that hazelnut assumed the proportions of the world. And she was, you know, one of the first of these people. So I, I put that in the movie. And then I uh, was giving these lecture tours. I went to Calvin College in Grand Rapids, and Fuller Theological in Pasadena, and Yale Divinity in New Haven. And I kept asking, who recognizes <laughs> the paperweight? And finally in Yale, one person said, isn't that Julia Norwich? So you are very rare in having caught that one. <laughs> <laughs> the question is kind of, in the context of the film though, what is the work that that reference is trying to do? Because Julian was like, she like lived through like the Black Plague and the Hundred Years' War, and then around age 30 she almost died and they did last, right? I know this, I've been reading Christian mystics. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm not trying to flaunt my own erudition, I'm just saying like, it seems very relevant to the Reverend's story in that he's kind of experiencing that kind of, there's chaos going the doom, and this story of Julian is kind of hopeful because she doesn't die and she says this whole thing about, you know, this is God, God made it, and God loves it and will save it. And I'm just wondering, in the context of this film and the character, what's the work you're trying to do with that? Well, you know, it's just a number of references in there. Um, there's also reference to the cloud of unknowing, which is another mystical text. Reference to Chesterton's book on the heretics. Obviously, a number of references to Merton. So it's just, um, it's not so much instructional, but sort of create the world in which these conversations occur. So it's not like point A to point B, it's like a cloud. I'm just wondering, what is your creative process? Like, you just walk into Chelsea, you decided that you're shooting film now, and after doing uh, still work, what would be the next? This is a very intimidating moment for me, and uh, I'm a little frightened. Uh, I don't quite know what's next. I've been avoiding this question. Part of me is very gratified. Part of me feels an enormous sense of completion. A lot of me says, I've accomplished the task that God put me on this earth to do. Once you accomplish that task, what do you do next? You know, um, Sam Peckinlaw made this wonderful film, Ride the High Country. Mm -hmm. And uh, Randolph Scott and Joe McRae, two old cow punchers. And they're talking, and Scott says to the prey, Steve, the character's name is Steve Judd, you know, what do you really want from life? And McRae says a line that Sam had heard <coughs> his father say. His father was a preacher. And the San Fernando Valley, 
general keyword value. And he says, all I want to do is enter my house justified. So what happens as an artist when you say, I can enter my house justified? What do you do next? I don't know. Sorry to take you to that place. Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, evidence is, it's, it's interesting to hear that, because, I mean, you've, you've had a number of kind of scrapes with a number of movies that were frustrating. I mean, that must be satisfying as to kind of come through this. Yeah, I mean, in a way, when they, when they kick you and you're lying down, when they stand in a circle and piss on you and laugh at you, <laughs> it's easier to get up than when they praise you. So the question is about the movie kind of goes head on dealing with uh, uh, you know, religious questions, but also radical environmentalism and whether you've heard the response from the Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because the reason I did this uh, seminary lecture tour is because of Last of Days of Christ. And uh, in that film, the forces against the film got the first punch in, and the film never recovered. And so I was thinking, well, in these alt-right radical Christians, who knows what they will do? I mean, there's no logic that necessarily pertains to them. And if they come after me, I, want, I don't want them to have the first shot. So I'm going to go to three major conservative seminaries, the mainstream of humanistic Christianity that I know so well. And, and I'm going to have discussions with the faculty. We'll have symposiums and lectures. And, um, and I found uh, in all three uh, schools, uh, in order to welcome me. I have not yet received a negative reaction from the radical Christian right. But if I ever did, I know how to respond to it now. I'll go to Calvin, I'll go to Fuller, I'll go to Yale, and you know, have them respond for me. But fortunately, I haven't had to. He's exactly about a hardcore film. I, uh, I regard that as a piece of juvenilia. Um, I didn't quite, you know, there was so much hostility. And, um, and then, of course, Columbia Pictures maybe changed the ending, and I never, ever forgave myself for changing that ending. Never. So, you know, I, I like George. And, but I do, I do not feel that it's the film of a mature artist. Are there, are there any films, just looking back at you in the past 15, 20, 25 years that you kind of wish you know, had a greater providence that you kind of think about? Well, I mean, I did one film about my father, I did another film about my mother. There are two lures films I did. <laughs> uh, just too close. The films where I had metaphorical distance, where I was talking about a taxi driver, or a drug dealer, or a jingler, were better because I wasn't so close. 
And I'm going through that very process right now because I started writing a script about my brother. And I, after 40 pages, I've quit because I, I said I'm just too close. I'm just too close. It's no, this is no good. I need some metaphorical distance. Uh, so, yeah, uh, there is a risk in being too close to your material. Yeah. All right, uh, just a chance for one more here on the line. The question is the, the audience member is from Japan and regrets not having seen more Yakuza films and is asking about the difference between violence, description, and Japanese and American films. There's a little speech in Yakuza, the film that I wrote, City Pollock directed with Bob Mitchell. And Herb Elvin says in that film, says that when an American cracks up, he opens the window and shoots strangers. When a Japanese cracks up, he closes the window and kills himself. <laughs> I kind of want to end on that. <laughs> but uh, really, we'll be, we do have to wrap up now, so uh, thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.